Welcome to the Packet Pushers Podcast. This is a show about data networking, and today, sort of another chapter in our Future of Networking series. We are live at FutureNet, which is the third year, I believe, we're running this in the VM World uh, event. We've been uh, invited to come and chat, and we have Guido Appenzeller and Bruce Davies with us uh, from VMware to talk some future of networking style ideas. And can, I, can, gonna... I, can I just start with something? I want to make fun of something first, just to get off of the right foot. <laughs> VMware announced some blockchain this week. Do you know how hard I laughed about that? <laughs> I mean, is blockchain really a thing? Like, we make jokes about blockchain everywhere, and I just continue to have, I actually have a filter in my email that takes a PR pitch from blockchain and puts it in the trash. So I find it deeply amusing. Yeah, so I would actually encourage you to go back and read an article from The Economist in something like 2015 mm -hmm. um, that actually talks about all the practical issues that can be solved by blockchain, yep. and it's got nothing to do with cryptocurrency. Yep. Um, and so... I actually view it as it's you know it's a new type of database, mm. and you know I, I'm actually I, I'm very optimistic that we'll find practical uses for it that yep. will have you know zero impact on on cryptocurrency. But um, and also I mean I actually think that the technology behind it it's it's the same sort of technologies that you know underlie a lot of other yep. distributed systems. So from a technology point of view, it's super cool. So, so Bruce is one person I know uh, out of the industry that's been working on more of an academic project around blockchain for networking. And the idea was to use blockchain, as you said, nothing to do with cryptocurrency, but to take the uh, take all the members that are on that blockchain and then use that as a as, as a control plane, as a distribution for information across the blockchain. Is that interesting? And do you think there's other sorts of applications that we're going to find that are real real world for blockchain? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's so funny because you know our keynote speaker is actually a blockchain expert, and so it's kind of embarrassing to be up here giving my opinion <laughs> because I know he knows way more than me. At least it's risky, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I, uh, Goon, if you're in the audience, please um, block your ears for this bit. Um, but uh, so. I mean, I think the way I think of it is anytime you've got something that, that's a, a, you know, a sequence of transactions that you would think of putting in a database, yep. but you kind of wish that database were not all sitting in one central place, mm -hmm. then that's a good, good use of blockchain. And so I, one of the examples that I stumbled on, because I am expected to have opinions about everything now that I'm CTO for, for yeah. every day. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's part of the job title. It is, yeah. yeah I'm you know, chief talking officer and all that. So I... And I guess the COO would be the chief opinion officer, uh, so I can aspire for that as well. But I, uh, so I, I stumbled on this, this one from the music industry. So you know, when you stream a song, there's a lot of people who think they should be getting paid because mm. there's somebody, there's a person who wrote the song, there's maybe the person who wrote the song that got sampled in the, you know, in the making of the song, there's the producer, yep. there's the, you know, the, the record label, the artist, et cetera. So it's actually quite a challenging thing to figure out like, who, who owns all the different rights for a song. Well, one way you solve that problem is you let the record company figure it out. Mm. Right, so you centralize all that information at the record company. That's actually kind of you know, terrible if you're an artist. Um, another way you could do it is you could actually write all the different things into a blockchain and have it all stored in different places. And, and everybody's got a copy. Leisure. Everybody has a copy. I'm still of a belief that the existing blockchains we have today are pretty good. You know, you take an Excel spreadsheet and send it to 50 people on a distribution list, it's pretty effective. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to move on um, to more realistic discussions. Self-driving. Self-driving. Self-driving yeah. database, yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things that we talked about in the keynote here this week was multi-cloud and hybrid cloud. Now, networking in multi-cloud and hybrid cloud, I, I started to get confused about what the difference between the two. And I had a discussion with you. What's the difference between multi-cloud and hybrid cloud? Can we take a perspective on that? Yeah, so I mean, I think the way I think about it is if, if we look at a, at a typical enterprise customer today, yep. um, you, you're starting to see two sort of centers emerge 
that do, do cloud, right? You sometimes have the, the classic IT team, you know, they're running uh, vSphere or some other hypervisor in their on-prem data center, and they want to get a second cloud so, that, so they can take their, their, their classic application, you know, the, the way they're written today, and maybe burst them out into a cloud or, you know, deploy some of them in the cloud or provide dev environments in the cloud when they need extra capacity, right? And, and they really like to have a cloud that looks the same as their on-premises cloud. Yep. Right? So, so that's sort of what we call a hybrid cloud. And then there's a, this, this other buying center, you know, where you have the, um, you know, the hipsters that want to do everything with a long uh, list of, of native services in, in these public clouds. You know, anything on-premise legacy, they want to be as far from them as, uh, as, as possible, right? Yep. That's more the native cloud guys, right? And they often, it's, it's actually organizationally separated. You have an IT team yep. and you have a cloud ops team. And um, so that's sort of emerging as two centers of gravity, right? Mm -hmm. And so f the way we call things, and then look, this is all still at a flux, right? But the way we describe things to say, there's the hybrid cloud is basically this cloud extension of the on-prem guys. The, the native public clouds is, you know, if you go right between EC2 or, or Azure or Google. So what you're leading to there is AWS is EC2 is their proprietary hypervisor. GCP's got a proprietary hypervisor. AWS is a proprietary hypervisor. Exactly. And I'm using vSphere in my private data center. So now I've got to bridge multi-vendor technologies. Exactly. I mean, and you, you get these, this, this funny silo effect, right, where you have, you know, the, the Amazon team with the reInvent hoodie versus the, you know, Azure team with the Microsoft backpack. You know, yeah. they have different APIs, different trainings, different skill sets, right? Yeah. And, and it's, it's really hard to move anything around, right? Mm. It's like, it's like, it feels like we're back to the days of HP Unix versus Solaris, right, yeah. where, where every architecture was different. Do we beat that problem? You said the difficulty in moving things around. Well, right, not every cloud is every uh, matching feature set. And so if you are in one cloud, you're kind of locked in there, aren't you? Uh, I think sort of yes and no, right? I mean, the, the, if you're using the IaaS layer abstractions, you are, right? Because the, the APIs you have at that level are different for all the different clouds. And it's not just the APIs, it's really the, the, the capabilities are very different today. The models may mm -hmm. be so different. Um, so what I see customers do is that they basically just move up the stack and say, like, okay, um, I need an abstraction layer on top, which you know makes these things look the same. And, and typically, you know, you start with compute, and, and what co customers are doing there is they're using containers, right? So, install you know your favorite container host on these different clouds. You know, run something like Kubernetes on top. Now I have a workload that's reasonably portable. Right? I, I met this one customer who was he put an SAP system into a Docker container, yeah. and it was like, well, what on earth are you doing, right? I mean, you're, you're deeply offending my architectural sensibilities here <laughs> with, with something like that. That's not a microservice by, by any metric. Yeah. And, and he was saying, look, it's, it's simply, I want to test the same image on, on Azure and in Amazon. That's the easiest way to get there. Right? The issue then, we have complexity in, in and among, you pick any one of these clouds, they're a, a big task to learn, especially for an engineer that wants to understand them deeply. So that complexity being put on customers if they want to go multi-cloud, you said abstraction layer. Is that how we solve this problem? You have to go to an abstraction layer and just kind of hide the complexity? Let's face it, every part of computer science is solved by abstraction. I mean, the, the, I think the example I always like is the one about just trying to get your security policy correctly implemented across all these clouds. If you have somebody who's expert on all the security features of AWS, they can probably take your policy and then get it right on AWS. And you have another set of people who are able to take your policy and get it right on, on Azure. But you know, the chances of getting that wrong when you're basically doing a manual mapping from policy to specific implementation is, is pretty high. And so, you know, this, this, you know, the sort of abstractions, this is why we announced all these, these cloud services. They're all about giving you a common abstraction that works yep. you know, consistently across all these different clouds. So multi-cloud is almost like an automation tool that lets you deploy a service, say, in AWS, GCP, and on-prem, yep. so in your ESX hypervisors, but then maps all the, the automatically or uses an automation process to derive the filtering policies or the application policies or the naming conventions. Or, you know, AWS has its identity manager, GCP has its identity manager, and 
if eSphere has its identity, you know, you'd be using an Active Directory. You've got to map all that together. You've actually got to automate and orchestrate that to make that work. And so that's where multi-cloud software, multi-cloud platforms come in. Yeah, that's the idea. I mean, and, and two, two comments on that. One thing is deploying is often the easier part. I mean, the, the day two operations at scale is usually where it gets really difficult, right? I mean, and, you know, deploying a container on, on, on a cloud, that's easy, right? You're trying to run a thousand containers, you know, with all the updates, uh, you know, in a, in a, with high availability, that's where, where things get very difficult. And the other thing is, we're very clear, right? The, the, these clouds will never look 100% the same, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, there's this long tail of services where they're all trying really hard to differentiate themselves. But the goal is to give at least the, the you know, the, the IT professionals a set of tools that, that allow them to do certain functions in a homogenous way. I think it's funny, I've got a pet peeve about day two operations because I think most vendors have done nothing with day two operations for 20 years. And now all of a sudden, day zero and day one, we're like, as, as commoditizations come through and the shift to software, all of a sudden day two is really important. And all those vendors are scrambling to say, oh, day two, we've been doing that for 20 years. And I'm going, like, no, you didn't. You used to just pump it, dump it, and poop it out and run off to the next deal. Yeah. So I find the whole day two operational focus quite amusing in a, in a sort of a cynical way. Yeah. I mean, I think it's actually it's a little bit funny for VMware that I think in some respects we were quite good at day two operations, maybe not so much on the networking side, but for yeah. things like vSphere, actually was helping you on day two, mm. it was actually the day one, day one was, was fairly painful. Like, yeah, that's right. That's what, you, know, you want to try and install, you know, vSphere and vSAN and NSX and all those other things, mm. you know, and that, you know, getting them all work together, that, that's something that we've actually realized we had to make that a lot easier. Yes. Um, so, you know, the stuff around, um, you know, VMware Cloud Foundation, that's actually trying to make day one easy, and then, you know, all the other products are there to help, you know, help day two be easier. So multi-cloud is multiple different types of cloud coming together, and hybrid cloud is the same types of cloud. So I might have an ESX infrastructure with you know, vRealize, and I might then use a vCloud Air network partner or VMware on AWS. So I'm using the same technology. It's just on-prem, off-prem. Some of it I own, some of it I don't own. Yep, exactly. So hybrid cloud is the simpler version, if you like, because the technology doesn't diverge so much. Okay, so in this conversation, we've mentioned uh, day two, uh, day two operations, automation, which takes me to intent-based networking. Where are we at with that? Do customers actually want that or need that? And then how hard is it to deliver that? So my first question is, when you say intent-based networking, does it have a TM after it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's got a special little logo that says washing, yeah. you know, or over-marketing. Yeah. Um, so, I thought it was actually, it kind of happened by accident that this, at this event last year, we ended up with the first four speakers all covering intent-based networking. Yep. And it really wasn't, wasn't intentional. Um, there was no intent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but uh, it was just like, well, we, we went to try and get a bunch of cool people up on stage. And <laughs> I was thinking, like, you know, let's get some of the young Turks. And all of a sudden, they go, oh, wait, we, we ended up with all these uh, intent-based networking people. But so, I mean, I, I like the idea of intent-based networking yep. um, as, a, as a concept. I think, you know, if, if you could say, I, I want to you know, specify my intent and then if the implementation of that intent is, you know, happens automatically, that sounds like a great thing to have, right? Because mm. um, I've also said I'd love to be six foot six and blonde, but you know, <laughs> it's, I, that's not happening. Um, so, uh, but I think the, uh, you, know, the you know, are we there yet? I mean, I think it's just like the self-driving data center. We, we are, it's a vision of where we'd like to get to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're not there yet. It's like one day you'll, I'll get to go and surf on a beach, you know, and, and be a really good surfer. But the first step is to get a car and have surfboard and then drive to the beach. And I think, yeah, I, I, I see it as automation is the way I look at it. We do automation first. So we, instead of pulling a lever, we create a machine that pulls the lever, does the configuration, does the thing we want. And then we realize we want to do automation, automation, automation. And we, so then we build an orchestration engine that does multiple steps of automation. And then the logical thing, which is what was announced on Monday, which is the project Magna, 
which is a project inside of VMware to start saying, oh, look, I can see something happening in the network. I've got some condition that I know. I will go and automatically run this orchestration for you and then drops down into a piece, series of pieces of automation. And I think that's where we're heading with intent. Now, I think we have to head yes. there. Because, so we were talking about all the complexity of these networks, especially multi-cloud networks. Okay, How are you going to uh, configure the network on the fly to deal with whatever your workload demand is, unless you have it automated, unless there's hmm. some kind of intention behind it? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's, you touched on two really interesting things there. I mean, I think at some level, the, the emergence of intent-based networking is happening because we're seeing much better programmability in the individual network components, right? I mean, doing this over, uh, you know, uh, uh, if you go 10, year, 10 years back when, when all you had was a CLI, right, uh, that was, you know, somewhat reliable and, you know, you had to basically screen scrape what's, what's coming back from it and trying to interpret it, it's very difficult to use that as a programming abstraction to build a sort of intent-based controller on top, right? But today, we're starting to see some of the, the network vendors actually have pretty good APIs. And, yep. uh, you know, I think the, the most amazing to me, actually, the, the public clouds, where basically I can have APIs and just tell me the entire state of, of the public cloud, right? And, and I can just get a, get a, get a state done. There's right entire there. apps now that will go into connect to your AWS and map out every service that you've got. Exactly. And, and, and do a pretty picture for you. They know every time. port, they know every IP address. I mean, in, in the data center, it's still very hard, right? If I say, hey, you know, where's my API to get the entire configuration of my data center you know, infrastructure? That's, that doesn't exist yet, but we're getting closer. And that enables these, these more intent based Well, interestingly, the, uh, the, the APIs are there, but then also there's only so much you can do in the cloud. There's a simplified set of capabilities as compared to what you might be able to do in a full blown data center. That's got to make things a little bit more make it easier to automate when you have less to, yep. to deal with. Yeah, I mean, it is, again, it's, it's abstraction, right? That you, you actually don't want to know exactly what's going on at, at every individual piece of hardware inside Amazon. You want to see an abstraction of what they're delivering. So this idea of the system self doing it itself, like self using AI or ML or, you know, straight up ordinary stuff, you know, like if this, then that. Um, Project Magna is something that VMware is doing. Is that going? To, do we see this in months or years or, or decades? Do you think? Uh, so I, I, I had a bit of a chat with uh, uh, the, the CTO of our business unit that's working on that, and uh, and he said it's absolutely real today. Um, but you know, the point at which we'll actually be able to declare self-driving, you know, hands off, and the thing does does everything that, that the human operator could have done, we're a few years from that. Yeah. Um, but the you know, they're absolutely you know, because we've got this massive amount of data about what's going on in the in the not just the network, but every aspect of the data center. You know, massive amounts of operational data are generated today, and we've had the tools to collect that and and look at it for a long time. So it's kind of a, a no-brainer that you would say, well, you know, if you if you get all that data and you can throw it into a, a machine learning algorithm and try to do some training to say, well, you know, a human would normally say, if I saw this, it's time to, you know, do a V motion to, to free up some capacity. Yep. You know, that this disk is degrading. This server needs yeah. to be pulled out of service. This means I need to. Da, 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 yeah. yeah. So it's, to me, it feels a lot like the same kind of things where you say, well, you know, we've just had, you know, 10 million photos of cats uploaded to the internet. And if we train an algorithm, you know, sooner or later, they get better at, at classifying those images than hmm. humans. One of the areas I'm concerned about that is vendors are using that data for good, that is for automation, you know, this process of doing self-driving or self-operating systems. But the other side that I'm getting concerned about is sales. That's what data can also be trained for sales, where the vendor actually gets an asymmetry, um, a, a, an advantage over the customer because they know more about what the customer is doing than the customer does themselves. And I have some concern about that going forward, and customers are going to have to get smarter to understand that vendors will know 
you know, so all of a sudden the salesperson's going to turn up on your doorstep and saying, you just decommissioned 10 of our VMs, you know, 10 of those servers, your license gone down, what's going on? You know, I can see that's coming. I am a little concerned about that. Not that I expect you to answer that question, by the way. <laughs> well, you know, at least we have a CEO who believes in, t in using tech for good, right? So, yeah. You know, at least our you know, corporate values would yeah. indicate we might not do the, the wrong yeah, well, thing. Zuckerberg says the same thing about Facebook. <laughs> he believes it's for good. Let's not say yeah. his version of good doesn't necessarily matter. I think, I think Pat has a better track record, but that's yeah. Well, another topic here then, uh, security is a feature and not a product. So uh, micro-segmentation, uh, application ID, um, uh, firewalls built into virtual switches and so on. Is that the new norm? Is that what we should be expecting in every layer? Yeah, I mean, I, I love this idea of sort of intrinsic security where it just, it's just sort of automatic that you get security built into your, all your products. And so, you know, I, people often ask me, like, what do you think the future of micro-segmentation is? And I, I sort of say, well, my hope at least is we get to the point where not having micro-segmentation micro is viewed with the same disdain as not doing your patches. Yep. You know, it's like, you know, it, it just becomes a no-brainer. Yeah, of course you do micro-segmentation, it's just good hygiene. Um, so I think that, that's kind of one, you know, one area where I think we've got a lot of parts where we can say, you can just have a security feature, it's really easy to have it on by default and we just get to a state where things are naturally more secure. Yeah, but I, I, think, I think security, ideally, should always be a feature. Because, I mean, look, how, how are we classically doing security, right? We build something, then we figure out this thing is not secure, and then we bolt on a security solution from the side, which typically increases complexity, means I have to buy two products, which never quite work with each other, and usability is horrible, right? Yep. And, and so building this into the product itself, I think, should be always the preferable solution. Um, the challenge is going to be we're dealing with the security industry, because a lot of the people in this who are so-called security professionals are very much in this product mindset. Like, we talked on stage this week about um, uh, Tom Gillis was saying that he's talking to customers and they have 50-plus security products, all different things doing things. And I'm looking at all of those products, and I'm going, they're not products, they're just features. Mm -hmm. You should have, like, standard things. And one of the things that I saw come out of the keynote this week was um, we saw AppDefense, which was going to be a product you know, sits in the hypervisor, monitors what's going on, and, and tracks, you know, the binary blobs, and if those binary blobs in the Windows um, operating system change, that when they shouldn't, it, then something's gone wrong, right? And now, all of a sudden, that's just vSphere Platinum. That's a feature, not a yeah. product. And so that's really what triggered that, and we're seeing NSX start to say um, it's doing application identification, so now once you've got application, I can start to do policies based on application recognition. I can do, you know, all those sorts of things. All of a sudden, security, once that was a product that I would put in line in a, an appliance, is now just a feature of the products that are in the infrastructure. And that, I think, is a major transition. But Bruce, I've got to pick up on something you said earlier, though. You mentioned it's easy, it's a no-brainer, you know, that, that we would get to that point. I don't think we're there yet. I think, uh, Tommy, I think I was chatting with you the other day about how you, you do some NSX admin work, but anytime someone wants a change to that policy, they're not changing it themselves. They're calling you to make that change. Yeah, we're, we're seeing that a lot. The customers are um, somewhat incapable of wielding the technology. They keep having to come back to us, the integrators, too make changes, especially architectural changes, they're incapable, they just don't understand. Like, and some of, them, some of them have smart individuals working for them, but it's these technologies that have been born out of the cloud thinking and are being distilled into the enterprise, 
it's it's really hard for them to wrap their brains around them. They they, they don't understand. Yeah, and I, I think I, I didn't want to oversell the sort of ease of use of, mm. of NSX as it is today. I think we've, we've, you know, when we were talking a few minutes ago about day two operations, like one of the things we really focused on after we'd done a lot of the kind of cool features in NSX was like, okay, now we need to make it easier for people to use and operate. And mm. so, you know, I think, again, this is sort of the, you know, the goalpost that we're heading towards is let's make it so easy to have micro-segmentation on by default that it becomes a no-brainer rather than to say it is today. I still think it's a no-brainer. You should be starting to go down that path today. Well, it um, seems like that's the obvious security architecture you have to have, right? Yeah. You can't just, there's no such thing as the trusted zone anymore. That's all gone. Yeah. So. I'm also concerned about the emptying out of talent in enterprise IT. One of the things that we've seen is that enterprise IT teams are getting smaller and smaller. And there's a widespread trend amongst technology vendors to actually say, buy our product and you won't need so many headcount, or automation will replace, replace the need for staff. And I think we're getting to the point where the, the, the uh, IT managers are starting to realize that they actually don't have anybody who knows anything. Mm. So they're not able to operate the NSX because nobody in their teams actually has skills or talent. And if there's anybody who's any good, they leave and go and work somewhere else. Yeah. Right? If you, you, why would you work for an enterprise and for a customer when you lack challenge and you don't get to do anything? I've, I've one, one thing I've heard from a customer was that you know, he said, we're, we're trying to go down a path where instead of having 200 people who do very tedious stuff and we, you know, we maybe outsource all of that because it's really you mm -hmm. know, kind of fairly brainless work but it needs hundreds of people, we'd rather have kind of 20 highly trained in-source people um, who, who, who know how to run our data center using software tools. Yeah. So I think the, the idea that you have maybe a higher level of skill to manage some of these you know, modern automation But you need, a, you need an ecosystem, right? You, I, so for the last five years when I was working for, as a full-time professional, I was working alone. There was only me. And when I wasn't there, there was nobody to do that work. And when I left, they, they didn't replace, a lot of the times they didn't even replace me with people, and they had no networking skill whatsoever. And they, have no, they believe that they don't need anybody. They bring them in to do a new design or when a transition or when a project is happening, and then they move them out because they're under the, under the belief, deluded belief in my opinion, that the network doesn't need to be operated because they were told that by the, by the vendor. Mm. And I think if, if you just don't have, you need multiple people because and as working alone is really, you don't know what you don't know in some senses unless you're actively out there searching the industry, reading white papers from competitive products and thinking deeply about where the market it's going and why things are changing, you can end up stuck alone and scared to do things because you just don't know what to do. But I think there's, there's, there's two, of, two things I'm seeing there. I mean, one thing is, for example, networking teams overall, the, the number of network engineers required, for example, per switch or so, I think that is actually shrinking. I think mm. that's, that's right, right? Um, if you go back and look at the number of server um, you know, administrators per server, uh, you know, in the, um, what was it, uh, you know, early 2000s or so, that also, you know, the, the, the massively declined, right? We, we got much, much more efficient thanks to things like virtualization, for example, mm. right? And so I think the part of what we're seeing here is that these network engineers are becoming better skilled. I talked to a, a director of networking yesterday who told me that he made all of his network engineers learn Python. Right? Mm. So it's now they're really starting to have a DevOps culture in, mm. uh, you know, in, in the networking team. So I think this is one part. You're getting smarter people with better tools. Yeah, but you know, more that's a fairly exceptional story. They, that's not the. That's not but, widespread. But I, I think, think it's the future. Right? I mean, if you look at the hyperscale operators, for example, they're all operating that way. Well, you have very small networking teams of highly skilled people that are super efficient. I think there's a. Um, there may be a second trend, which is that some of this functionality just moves up the stack, so it shows up in a different mm. department, right? And, and you mm. don't see it anymore. And, and right now we're in the middle of this cloud revolution, but a lot of the, um, the, 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 the functionality, so I think, is moving from sort of classic 
uh, you know, data center temporarily in, in lines of business and, and, and cloud teams, right? And in long term, I think they'll come back, right? And this is always the, the pendulum, right? I mean, mm. when the PCs happened, everybody bought a PC and put it under their desk, and now we're back to VDI, right? I mean, it's, it's, going, uh, yeah, it's going back and forth. So I think in part is also that we're just seeing their temporary outflow there to, to other areas, which currently we don't label IT, and, and they'll come back over time. Mm. I, think the, I think we get to a point eventually where there's just not enough people. So the, and without a sufficiently diverse pool of professionals to work with, we actually ossify. Mm. You, like you're talking about a small number of elite individuals, and if suddenly those people go off and work in another business, we've got nothing. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the company that uh, sent, its, sent their network engineers out to learn Python, right? Yeah. Okay, I don't know how many companies are doing that. I'm not hearing that story too often. Like I see a lot of folks who are self-motivated. They're going after trying to pick up coding skills and so on. But so there's, there's a, a certain class of businesses that are very keen to keep their competitive edge and will push and push and push in the techn technological arena to keep that edge. And then there's other companies that are more like, <laughs> they'll keep it going, it's an expense, they're not going to drive ahead with uh, um, training and so forth because they don't want to spend that money. How long can I keep my old stuff going? And as, to, to, to Greg's point, eventually we run out of skills. But this, this director of networking, he wants to reduce costs, right? Let's be very clear, right? Mm. He was basically saying, like, I, I want to do more with less people, right? My current manual approach... Is we could reduce costs if vendors would charge a bit less. <laughs> a, lot of the, a lot of the cost is in the operations anyway, right? Oh, right, sure, 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 sure. All right, a, a, very, a very practical question. I want to move on to a, to a new topic here. Um, we are seeing the rise of disaggregated networking. More and more NOS is coming to the fore, uh, white box and white box platforms, uh, uh, companies like Cumulus that are out there, uh, IP Infusion, uh, et cetera. Even Cisco now with iOS XR beginning to, in select cases, uh, offer their NOS on white box. The challenge then is if you go and adopt that model, you say, I want to try something new, I want to go white box, that reduces my CapEx tremendously, and I'm going to pick a NOS of choice and put it on there, and I'm going to deploy that in my data centers. Who supports that? What's the support model look like? And the pushback seems to be businesses that are very used to, let's say, the Cisco model, where I buy a switch, I buy a router, I put SmartNet on it, I call TAC, and everything gets fixed, and I don't have to worry about it. Well, who do you call yeah. now? So, I mean, uh Company I can call it best on is Big Switch, of course. Uh, you know, um, the, the, the software vendor supports the entire stack. So you call the software vendor, they'll debug it, and they'll RMA uh, the hardware. And typically, I mean, how this works is that the, the software that runs on top is, is reasonably sophisticated in understanding hardware defects. So the decision tree goes down to, you know, if, if test this, test this, test that. If yes, RMA the hardware, right? You're going to get a new box and, uh, and, and start with a new box. So, no, you mentioned one specific case there, Big Switch, that said, we'll just take care of it. And in their case, there's a hardware compatibility list that's very rigorous, and so that kind of makes sense in that model. Um, but it wasn't always as straightforward as who, time, was I talking to you again? Was it you or, you or Chris that has a, has a, a, a scary story to share? One of our first uh, implementations with, with that kind of model, right, we, we came up against exactly the case you just mentioned where um, there was a hardware issue, uh, showed up in our lab too, and it ended up being, you know, a problem with the ASIC, and the vendors were kind enough to point us out, but then we're sitting here uh, looking at it going, well, I guess I gotta buy own new hardware. Now, was, was this was, an ASIC that had gone bad, or was this like a no, fundamental no, this, issue? No, this, no, this, is this is a bug in the ASIC. This is, uh, you know, Cumulus is telling us, like, no, sorry, tough crap, you're down four ports, you'll never get them back uh, unless you rebuy this hardware, and I'm like, wow. Well, that wasn't part of the promise. This is interesting. And it, they went the distance to, to help us figure it out. But uh, 
uh, we were envisioning, you know, what would, what, the, what would this be like at the customer if I was in an enterprise and I had to go back to my CIO and be like, hey, sorry, we bought all those switches, but we got to buy more. Well, at least they were cheap because they were white box, but mm. there goes the savings. <laughs> but, I mean, there's, there's one more thing that I think that the, to me, the big trend here is bare metal more than white box, if you know what I mean, right? I mean, I think we're, we're seeing companies like Dell, for example, getting very successful in selling um, switches without software. Sure. I think, you know, in the future, you'll see more and more partnerships between the, the software vendors and the hardware vendors that, you know, go, go to market more with a solution approach, so, right? I mean, so, so does it need to be that way, a partnership between the hardware and the software vendors, or is there room here to, for a third party that would say, hey, I'll just take over all of that support Whatever your integrations, uh, you know, are, we'll we'll deal with that for you. Be the front end. I mean, look, buying two products from from two companies that don't talk to each other, or, or at least are not willing to take back switches, uh, you know, as in the case before, it would scare me a little bit if I was a if I was buying equipment, right? I mean, if, if you're going to if, if you're buying a, a Dell server with, with Windows on it, and it turns out uh, you know the hardware is defect, then Dell would probably send you new hardware. See, I, I would argue with that because I think most enterprises just end up sucking it up. They buy products, they get them, put them on the ground and start using them, and then they just work around the limitations of the product that they bought. So um, somebody who deploys well. ESX or you know, vSAN or NSX, and they play with stuff, and eventually they realize that they don't know how to do something or that doesn't do the thing they thought it was, and they just adapt around it. They don't send it back. I mean, last time I heard somebody send gear back to a vendor because it didn't do what they, the vendor promised, they ended up in court, and it took four years to send it back. You know, so the, the reality is people don't send stuff back, they get stuck with it, and they get angry and upset, and the vendor gets away with the money. You know? I think there's also a difference between whether you had a, had a, you know, a product that it simply you know, had, a, had a malfunction, which I think was yeah. the, the RMA example that Guido gave, versus you know, a product where the, you know, the vendor told you it had a capability that you know, turned out not to be the case. So we generally well, try not to do that. They tell you it's got a capability, but the, tra the, the message gets lost in translation. The person was actually telling you what they understood the problem to be, and the, the, the other side t told, you know, said, oh, we've got a feature that does this, and then there's a mis... It's not normally deliberate on either party. It's just one of the things that happens in complex environments. But mostly enterprises just find ways to work around them. They don't, you know, all, all carriers or telcos or MSPs, they don't, um, they usually, no one kicks up a fuss and, and they all suck it up and, and, and just put up with it. I mean, also, I think it depends how severe it is, right? If there's an easy workaround, okay, yeah. whatever, right? If it was at four ports, that seems like kind of a lot. <laughs> yeah, but it depends on what you're doing with those ports. Maybe we should close on a, uh, another question here. Some of the VMware messaging has been one network, kind of that vision of, Everything's going to be working together no matter where your workloads are, uh, where your apps are, what the security requirements are. It can all be managed as one network. Now, we've talked a lot about complexity. Abstraction layers have come up here. How feasible is it to actually get to a point of one network? Is that, is that a roadmap vision we hope someday maybe? Or is there an actual way that you know, if we take these steps, we get there? It's probably, probably somewhere in between. Yeah. You know, the idea of like one network seems it's a very abstract view of things, right? That I think the way, the way I would describe our, our vision is more, there's a, there's a set of capabilities that you need that you can put those capabilities anywhere you need to put them independent of where the workload runs. So you have these common capabilities, whether you're running in different clouds or on containers or VMs or out of the edge, and your networking capabilities, and, which include security capabilities, right? Mm. I, I'm really big on this idea that networking mm -hmm. and security can't be separated anymore. And so you, those capabilities get deployed wherever the data is, wherever the application runs, and they're consistent across all these environments. 
Now, when you say one network, to me, it kind of creates this vision of like, well, you just have a really, really scalable version of NSX, you know, and you, you, you go talk <laughs> to that single API mm. and it controls the entire universe. Well, I, I think we can all agree that's not happening. But, you know, certainly for, you know, a single enterprise, for example, you know, so today we have, you know, NSX for the data center and we have the confusingly named NSX SD-WAN by VeloCloud. Um, <laughs> So, Genius marketing right there. That, yeah, that's so a, there's a little friction around that one. Yeah, but, it's a so, transition. Uh, it's clearly something's in transition now. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but anyway, so that you know, so we have these these two products, and you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that you know they're two products because we built one in house and we got the other one for an acquisition. Mm. Um, but they actually can today, you know, talk to each other and give you a somewhat unified view of mm. your networking from data center all the way out to the edge. Um, but, you know, now that we've got that technology in-house, we can do much tighter integration where you actually could get to a point of having a single pane of glass, at least. But, yep. you know, you, I don't, you, if you looked at the NSX UI, there's a lot of tabs there, right? You know, there's the yes. firewalling tab and the tracing tab and the routing and the switching. It's well, you can like imagine a having of, a few more tabs for the WAN piece. It might yeah. be a single pane of glass, but it's more like a stained glass with yeah. lots of little panels. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that... I think it's interesting, like that single pane of glass, how do you spell pane? <laughs> people do often say that's what I want, but I think, you know, mostly what I think people want is they want to get the networking services that they need and not be tied to, well, I bought a box and I stuck it there, so now I've got the services there, hmm. but oh, now I want to run my workload off in Amazon, I guess I'd better buy a box and ship it to Amazon and ask them to install it for me, like that's not happening, right? So, yeah. so I think that's, the, that's really the vision for us is your capabilities go where you need them as opposed hmm. to it's one grand unified network. Do you end up seeing a division of responsibilities, maybe, if you've got the, the one network in the context of how you just described it, but maybe you end up with responsibilities such that network engineers are working on the underlay, and then where all the policy enforcement is happening up in the overlay, maybe that's a different group of folks. Is that a, a natural breakup? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you, know, you certainly, you know, if you get to the, the big guys, you know, I think we had David Maltz here a, a couple of years ago from Microsoft talking about, you know, his job was basically, um, oh, hi, David. Um, <laughs> you know, I hope I'm not going to misquote you here, but, uh, you know, basically his job was to d deliver a rock-solid underlay to the team above him. Mm. Um, and I think that's a great division of labor, you know, whether you can afford to have an entire team of highly trained David Maltzers maintaining your, your uh, underlay, you know, that, you know, your mileage may vary, I guess, but um, <laughs> that's, that, that is, I think that's a great model to say, yeah, we deliver a rock solid underlay so yep. that the team above does, does the policy. I think if you look at it more, a bit more long term, right, we're starting to see infrastructure more and more converge, right? We're hearing from enterprise customers that are busy saying, look, I, maintaining infrastructure is, is not really productive for me. I want to mm. get out of that business, right? So I think that the, the, the vision we're working towards is that, you know, a, a rack comes off, a, off the truck, gets bolted to the floor, gets turned mm. on, exposes an API, and can start provisioning applications on it somehow. Yeah. And then it updates itself. I mean, back to the self-driving, uh, you know, uh, yeah. example of the be uh, beginning. And networking has to become part of that. You know, the funny thing, I'll, I'll tell you a hyper-converged story that happened to me. I was, um, talking to somebody uh, a few weeks back, and he was talking about the infrastructure. He works for a warehousing company, and they distribute uh, a particular thing. And he said, yeah, well, no, our platform's totally hyper-converged. It's an AS400 running Lotus Notes. <laughs> right? It's a single vendor solution. It's hyper-converged. It's you know, one single pane of glass. Right? Isn't it funny how nothing actually changes in this industry? And I think the other lesson to take away is we were at a conference of the future of networking, talking about where the future's heading. It's also worth remembering that the future's not evenly distributed. There are genuinely people out there running mainframes and AS400s with Lotus bloody notes on it. And, um, <laughs> and here we are talking about you know, this, this wonderful world of SD-WAN where the edge talks directly to a micro-segment in the data center and application IDs and there's automation orchestration and intelligent operations dynamically happening based on machine-learned data. 
the, you know, the future is not, not homogenous. It, yeah, it, absolutely. And I actually think that's, that's a big part of our story, honestly, is it's a very heterogeneous future. And so that's, you know, that's why we have a multi-cloud story, right? It's, like, it's not like everything ends up in one cloud. Yeah, it's, it's getting like more that. heterogeneous right now. Yeah, I like to see more as you don't actually know what you're doing and you're doing all the things instead. <laughs> <laughs> Taking a punt, you know, so instead of betting on one horse to win, you're betting on all the horses in the race, just in case one of them wins. Yeah. Which is well, Guido Appenzeller, Bruce Davies, thank you very much for joining us. Let's give him a hand. Now for the wrap in which you have a part. You can find the show notes for this episode in your podcatcher. And if you visit packetpushers.net, you can discover over 1,000 other episodes from across our podcast network for networking and infrastructure professionals, along with our community blog and news feeds. Tweet at Packet Pushers, follow us on LinkedIn, rate us on Apple Podcasts, and become a premium member at ignition.packetpushers.net. Now, if you listen to the show, you know what's coming next. Last but not least, remember that... Too, Too much, much networking, networking would never, never be, be enough. enough. All right. <laughs>